Welcome to For the Love of Yoga. In this podcast series, we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. So today we're talking about reincarnation. We're continuing our discussion from last week. And it was an exciting discussion, huh? We went all over the place, talked about all sorts of things. Today we'll try to focus in a little bit. We'll ask, what is reincarnation? What is it exactly that continues or carries on after death? And how um, can this theory empower our spiritual practice? So that's the most important thing. It's important to remember that this is a theory, that it's a concept. So as you stay in this meditative space, remember that yoga is not about concepts. And yes, you know, we've gotten together over the past few Mondays to talk about concepts to discuss theories, to philosophize, but ultimately yoga is not about that. So we must be careful not to become overly impressed or attached to concepts. So remember the map is not the territory, the concept is not the experience. The concept of biting the strawberry is nowhere near the actual immediate experience of tasting the strawberryness explode upon the tongue. So there is a huge gap between our thoughts, our thought forms, or our concepts, and that to which they point. And you know, the Buddha used to say, do not confuse the finger pointing at the moon with the moon itself. So in a way, that's going to be our disclaimer for the day. Reincarnation can become a dogma. It can become a belief. In fact, all spiritual concepts can degenerate into religion and become beliefs. Um, and we want to avoid that. So I would recommend don't believe anything I tell you. Don't, don't do it. Don't take my word for anything. And don't disbelieve either. Just with an open and receptive attitude, test concepts out in your own life and see which ones bring you closer to truth and bring you away. So that being said, uh, Sri Ramakrishna, the great Indian saint, always talked about concepts as uh, splinters. The problem is we have a splinter in our arm and it's the splinter of wrong knowledge. You know, um, we've inherited a set of beliefs, concepts and uh, ways of viewing the world that don't really serve us, that perpetuate suffering. So what do we do? We look for spiritual solutions. Eventually, you know, we look for spiritual solutions to these problems. And when we come into spirituality, lo and behold, you're just given more concepts. You're given new ways to think of yourself and think of the world. Um, dangerously, some of these concepts switch out your old ones without ever transformatively affecting you on any level. So where before you were amassing wealth, chasing the Ferraris, now you're amassing spiritual wealth, looking for new beads, new teachers, new Reiki certifications, you know? So on one hand, that's going on. But at its best case, you go and get a bunch of new concepts. Let's call them right knowledge. So you now have a more accurate or more realistic perception of who you are, who the world is. These are good concepts. So what do you do? You take the splinter of right knowledge and you get rid of the splinter of wrong knowledge. What do you do with the splinter of right knowledge once you've gotten rid of the splinter of wrong knowledge? You throw that one away as well. So ultimately, all concepts must move you beyond need for concepts. 
The goal of yoga is to give you a first-hand, direct experience of reality. Okay. So that being said, let's talk about the concept of reincarnation. Um, I want to start today with a story, actually. It's a very fantastic story. It takes place in 1904, England. So in 1904, there is a woman born um, into an Irish family. Her name is Dorothy Edie. Has anyone heard Dorothy Edie, Om Seti? This is kind of a fantastic story, but this woman, Dorothy Edie, she's born, and uh, she's always been a very peculiar child. Legend has it, or, or reports have it, that one day she fell down the stairs and she suffered a brain injury. Uh, from that point onward, she started to have weird memories, like very um, intrusive thoughts of Egypt, of a different life, of being a priestess in a temple. And she developed foreign accent syndrome, which is a real thing that happens to people. They have head injuries, head traumas, and they suddenly start speaking an accent. Uh, it is not unknown that people have a head injury and start speaking an entirely different language that they didn't know before. And it happens, you know, and, and you can check it out. I think it's man wakes up from coma and speaks Mandarin. There was a case in Australia. You can Google it, you know. But Dorothy Edie is a very interesting case. And if you want to Google it, it's D-O-R-O-T-H-Y, Edie, E-A-D-Y. Fantastic story. They made lots of biographies. and There's books all about her because what happened was when she fell down the stairs, she had these memories of Egypt and she would have um, nightmares and she would sleepwalk and people were very concerned about Dorothy, Miss Dorothy Edie. One day, her parents took her to the British National Museum. She saw a picture of the temple of Abydos or Abydos and she went, oh, my home. And she's like, where are all the trees? Where's the grass? What happened to it? She was kind of horrified to see in a room where all the pharaohs and Egyptian people were, you know, the wax figures. And she started to kiss their feet. She was so excited. She was like, oh, my, my people. And from that point on, she kept pestering her parents, you know, take me home, take me home. It's all very strange. So she became so interested in Egypt that she would spend hours in the British National Museum, National History Museum, just looking at all this stuff. So one day at the museum, she met the famous uh, archaeologist E.A. Wallace Budge, and I'm sure you've heard of him. Um, some people think he's a rascal because he stole a lot of artifacts from Egypt and brought them to England. But he's kind of like the um, inspiration for Indiana Jones. If ever there was a real-life Indiana Jones... This was it. E, uh, Wallace Budge, he used to wear a hat, go to Egypt, break into tombs, you know, suffer the Pharaoh's curse and work with bandits. Also, he could acquire these artifacts and he had a real love for antiquity. So the British Museum owes a lot to E.A. Wallace Budge. Egypt is very angry at E.A. Wallace Budge because he kind of ferreted out of Cairo a lot of things. So anyway, he meets Dorothy Edie and he's so inspired by her enthusiasm and her love for Egypt that... Um, he starts encouraging her to study more. Eventually, she finds her way to Egypt, you know. She gets there. And here's the interesting thing. She eventually finds her way into the Temple of Abydos, and archaeologists start to test her. They put her in the dark room, and she can identify what paintings are where, I mean, what hieroglyphs are where, which room is where. Um, and it was very eerie, because there's no reason why this early 20th century um, Sussex-born Londoner should have such... Um, intimate knowledge of the temple that archaeologists didn't even know. So she would say, dig here, and they would find something. You know, so it wasn't like she was reading this stuff. This stuff wasn't even published yet. She just had such an intimate recollection of that lifetime. So she finally started to say, okay, I was a priestess in the temple of Abydos. I remember the little pharaoh. He was a, a, a nasty little boy running around mischievous. She had all these very humanistic memories. Eventually, they started calling her Om Seti. 
So a lot of the documentaries use that name. Her name is Om Seti. And Anisha's like, ah, I've heard of that. Yeah, so this is a famous story, Om Seti. It seems to be someone um, who remembered her past life. And these stories are not few or far in between. There are plentiful accounts of people who have strong memories of past lives, who they were, what they were doing. Sometimes they go out and seek the associates they had in their past life. And the Dalai Lama, as we discussed last week, um, is often selected based on this reincarnation theory. So the new Dalai Lama is put in front of all the toys of the old Dalai Lama and the ability to recognize those toys, which toys belong to him in the past life, is how you know that's the actual Dalai Lama. Same story in Avatar, right? How do you identify the Avatar? You know, <laughs> it's the same thing. And that's where that myth comes from. Now, it seems like not all of us have the privilege of remembering past lives. In today's talk, I'm actually going to argue for the contrary. I'm going to argue that you have a more intimate understanding of your past life than you might presuppose. So bear with me, we'll get there. Now, some people, though, seem to have a very obvious um, experience of the past life, right? They, they have memories, they remember their name, and in Dorothy Eady's case, she was able to actually prove to researchers her actual memories of her life as a priestess in the Temple of Abidos. Not all of us have that. So last week, we asked Zachary that reincarnate. So let's return to that now. The only way we can ask this question um, intelligibly is by talking about yogic anatomy. So what are the parts that make you you? You know, what are the layers of your being? And which of those layers continues? Which of those layers cease? So for those of you who have been, me, been with me for a long time, you know that there are two systems of anatomy. There's the yogic system of anatomy. And in yoga anatomy, the outermost layer of the body is known as andamaya kosha. In direct translation, it's, uh, uh, what do you call it, food body. So this is the body made of physical materials, like literally food. You eat and that's what builds this body. So that's your outermost body, physical. Underneath that body is the pranamaya kosha, which is your etheric double or energy body. So this is the body that... Um, People talk about having, you know, leaving the body and going on astral adventures, and this is subtle body work. That's that's underneath the body. Deeper than that is the Mandamaya Kosha, which is your mental body. So this this is the world of your thoughts, your mind, um, your emotions also. Remember, in Indian philosophy, thoughts and emotions have the same word, which is chitta. If they were different things, you wouldn't be able to have thoughts about emotions, nor would you be able to feel things about your thoughts. They exist on a spectrum. So chitta is the name for those two things. Now, underneath that is the vijnanamaya kosha, which is called the higher mind or the deeper mind. Maybe what Carl Jung would call the unconscious or Freud would call the subconscious, but a little deeper than that. This, this is the realm of archetypes. It's the realm in which gods live. And, you know, it's a very poetic and mysterious realm that you can only access through meditation. Deeper than that is the anandamaya kosha, which is the bliss body. So it works this way. If you're able to still your body, maybe still, then you can access your energy. If you're able to work intelligently with your energy through pranayama or breathing techniques, then you'll be able to control your mind. So you'll be able to um, move mental energy, which, you know, for a lot of us just happens to us. We don't choose our thoughts. They just come and they go and we're at the mercy of our minds, you know, and our patterns. So when we work with our body and we work with our energy, we're able to work with our mind. Then comes meditation. Through meditation, through working with body, that is posture, energy, that is breath, and mind, that is through focus in meditation, you access Vijnana Maya Kosha. And when you work with that higher mind, 
Then you access Ananda Mayakosha, and that translates to your bliss body. So these are states of ecstasy far deeper than any emotional highs that you've experienced from external events. Now, that's not the last layer. If you're able to work with that, you go even deeper to your trick anatomy. You are not the body. You are not your energy. You are not your mind. Nor are you your higher mind. Nor are you your bliss. You are deeper than all those layers. You are the point from which all these states emanate. So you know the Matryoshka, the Russian doll? Have you seen? You open the doll and there's another one. That, that's basically what it looks like in yogic anatomy. You open, open, open. You are the space inside, actually. That's what turns, it turns out to be. But of course, don't take my word for it. This is something that we all must experience ourselves. So you know there's a yogic anatomy. But there's also a tantric anatomy. So bear with me. It's important that we talk about this anatomy so we can talk about what it is exactly that reincarnates. I prefer the tantric anatomy because this is how it looks like in the tantric system. Your outermost layer is vashtu, stuff, your material acquisitions. Underneath that is your body, your deha. So like the anandamayakosha, your body. Underneath that is your chitta, your thoughts and emotions. So in tantra, um, your thoughts and emotions are underneath the body. What's underneath the thoughts and emotions? Prana, energy. And underneath that is, um, well, deeper stuff like space. It's just called shunyam, space. And that's the bliss body. And deeper than that is your true self. Now, I like the tantric system because it has energy a little deeper than thoughts, emotions, and physical life. It's a really a chicken and the egg problem. You know, which came first, energy or thoughts? So you know that certain thoughts um, change your energy and you know that being in a certain energetic state changes your thoughts. So when you're feeling a very purified, rarefied form of energy, we call that sattva, naturally you think sacred philosophical thoughts. But if you sit here and we have this philosophical discussion, it doesn't matter what your mood was coming in, likely these thought forms, because the vibration of these thought forms are so rarefied, it will transmit that prana to you, you know? So I like the tantric system because it says this, everything is just a sheet of energy vibrating at different frequencies. Your body is a specific vibration of energy. It's a gross or dense vibration. Einstein talks about his unified field theory. To Einstein, matter is nothing more than dense parts of the field. So we can say Einstein's field is a sheet of pure energy. Your body is vibrating in that. Let's say, I don't know, frequency X hertz or something. You know, it's very subtle. Uh, more, a higher frequency than your body is your thoughts and emotions, you know? That frequency is determined by the quality or the frequency of energy expressing itself in that moment. So we call this your energy body. Your energy body affects your mind, your emotions, your physical body, and, you know, to a large degree, your actual life. So how much money you're going to have, what health you're going to enjoy, who you're going to meet and who you're going to fall in love with. You know, all of that, in a way, is determined, not in a way, but directly is determined by what frequency you're carrying energetically, you know? So that we all know. That's good enough. So let's just say now that frequency, that emission, is the etheric body. We All of us have this etheric body. This is what the yogis say reincarnates. You can think of the etheric body as a kind of database. It stores stuff. It's like a storehouse. Um, it stores the code um, of your life, and this continues to express itself in new lives. 
So that's enough for yogic anatomy. Now we know what carries forward. Now we can start intelligently talking about karma. So what is this? You know, what does carry forward and how can we change that? So I just want to say, um, there are Buddhist schools of thought, uh, Northern Buddhist, Mahayana Buddhist, they're called, or Vajrayana, Tantric Buddhist. They say, when you come into this life, you chose your parents. You know, you chose where you were going to be born, what part of the world you're going to be born. You chose how um, healthy, how attractive you were going to be. You chose at which points in your life you would have which diseases, you know, um, and you chose at which points in your life you would encounter certain teachers and when you would die, you know. So in the Buddhist school, there's a degree of agency here. So when you die, um, you leave your body, you leave your stuff, you leave your thoughts and emotions, and all that's left is you as a spirit or energy body. And even deeper than that, you kind of step outside of your energy body and look at the energy body and see what's going on. You go, ah, okay, that's there, um, and that needs to express itself. There is a desire to become a rock star there. Um, let's take a body um, that will enable that desire to find expression, you know? So in the Buddhist school, some Buddhist schools, there is agency. You are kind of consciously choosing your reincarnations based on certain needs and desires that your spirit has. In the yogic schools, there is a little bit less agency. You're not really choosing. Rather, you are just living out the effects of causes that you started at some point. So in the yogic school, it's a little, it's not to say deterministic, but it's a little bit more, let's say, mechanistic, you know? So when there is a cause, there must be an effect. Reincarnation then is just the process whereby causes consummate themselves in their necessary effects, you know? So if I were to kick a ball off the top is the ball landing on the ground. The process through which the ball goes from the top of the buildings like gravity, call gravity the body, has to find its effect. So far, so good? So that was a little bit abstract, and I'll try to unpack. Audio and camera, okay, for you on your end? Is it like syncing up? Because on my end, like, I'm just frozen sometimes. I want to back up a little bit and say, thank you, Eden. I want to back up a little bit and say, the prime cause for this universe, right? Uh, many classes ago, we all sat together and we discussed, um, uh, yes, Dharma, we discussed, Dharma class, we, dis we discussed why creation. So why is it that this world has come into being? Consciousness, that you can give it any name, uh, Purusha, the yogis call it, Atman, some other, much maligned, you know. It's, it's a noun, right? It's a, no, sorry, it's a of consciousness of bliss. So we asked, why is it that the universe spawned? And we wanted to experience itself in form or the unity of consciousness in diversity. So it's kind of boring just to be one. It sucks to be many in many. You know, so when you can recognize yourself in you consummate the purpose of the universe. So without a universe, without a manifest world of form, we sit in pure bliss. The universe can look at the universe in a variety of different forms. So like Nickness, Lyricness, Anishaness, Nishness, they're all the same being, but they're vibrating in an individual way that allows us to self-explore.
So when I talk to Nick, it's the universe exploring itself. You know, it's, it's Nish, the universe exploring, Nick, the universe, and vice versa. So that's the ultimate, is the desire to experience ourself in embodiment, in materiality. So what is the final effect then? No matter what you do in this life, you cannot prevent the effect of this primal cause. And that effect is rare. Not just humans, um, but animals, plants, beings in different realms, angels, uh, gods, demons, everywhere will become enlightened. And what does it mean to become enlightened? To realize their true identity for being consciousness bliss. And when they do that, the universe will have every set of eyes that she has created. Huh? So that's, that's the ultimate effect. So she will be able to see herself because certain eyes are closed. <laughs> up so to speak not to sound missionary-esque like that but we're trying to encourage that's the final effect but in this macro cause and macro effect oh i always ask why was the universe created the yogis will give you perhaps the most profoundly disappointing answer which is for no reason for lila so we call this creation shiva lila shiva being the name of the divine lila you know what that word means it means play some people actually call it shiva kripa or, or Krita, and that name, uh, that means game. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's a beautiful reason. It's, it's entirely aesthetic philosophy, art for art's sake, beauty for beauty's sake. You know, some people ask, is this universe art? And art might not be an accurate word because art is usually, usually representational. So art is when we use symbol, um, sound, or some, some medium to express something else, right? So art usually points to something beyond itself. So art's not a very accurate word for this universe. Instead, maybe artful play is better, you know? Play is also a difficult word because you know that animals like uh, wolves or whatever, they play, <laughs> but they, they play functionally, right? They play fight so when they grow older, they can actually fight. And there are all these behavioral theorists that talk about play as a part of... We don't want any of that nonsense functionalism means to an end bullshit. We just want play for its own sake. So play might not be the right word. Dance, it's still an art. So it's kind of hard, you know, if we just call this the play of God, the dance of God, there's no reason to it other than for its own enjoyment, you know, and to perfect that enjoyment, all beings must wake up because until that point, there is suffering. Remember how last week we talked about suffering? I want to use that piece now. Last week we discussed that the root of suffering was not knowing who you are really. As long as you, the part, think that that's all there is to it, that you as the part consider yourself to be the whole, then you feel the limitations of your contracted form. You feel the fear of death, the fear of um, suffering, all that stuff comes insofar as you do not recognize your purnyata in Sanskrit meaning wholeness. Once you meditate deeply and touch upon that wholeness, then there is no more suffering. Now, the ultimate point of the universe is to finish with suffering, but suffering was necessary. You know, suffering was kind of the price we paid to become form. And you know, ultimately, for there to be Anisha, Anisha must reject non-anishanas you know so she must for a time at least identify as the part you know only then can the part have meaning now the point of anisha spirituality is not to obliterate anishanas it's just to expand 
Anisha's concept of self to include Nick and Madeline and Nish. And then we are now sitting together, the uni- and you know, ultimately we sit here, it doesn't really matter what we say, right? We all just feel high anyway. So we're just sitting here feeling good together and we finish the call and we feel good, you know? Um, and in a way, we're, we're right now, we're experiencing in a microcosmic way this expression. We're just sitting. We're all in our dharma. You know, I'm here doing what the niche vibration wants to do. You're there doing what the, you know, lyric vibration wants to do. And it's exactly what the universe is here to do. It's a beautiful idea that of the infinite possibilities that the universe had, you know, infinite creative capability, it chose to vibrate uniquely as Madeline, uniquely as Eden. You know, is that beautiful? It's just, wow. There's some, some um, grandness and profundity to this specific form. Now, the problem is when we take this form to be all we are, and then there's like ego aggrandizement and be like, I'm the shit, you know, I'm Jesus Christ, I'm awakened, you know, you get this messianic complex. It's all a little bit tricky. So anyway, that's the ultimate cause and that's the ultimate effect. As we go from the ball falling to the ball landing, you know, or I should say the ball bouncing back up, right? Because it's, it's, it's a return journey too. Um, but as we go from this process, infinite shit happens, right? You, you get a body, you lose a body, you're, you're incarnated in different worlds. Here we are in the physical realm and then there are astral realms. In yoga, they're called lokas, you know, planets. And we'll talk about them, definitely. It's a very wild world out there. But now you get all this crazy stuff. There's like all sorts of metaphysical nonsense. The Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha said, please don't concern yourself with this stuff. You know, you can spend hours astral projecting and looking around all the lokas. You can sit and debate with philosophers for hours as to which realm is what and how do you get here and there. And that won't serve you. You know, the Buddha said, your only job is to become enlightened in this life. Don't even worry about reincarnation. Don't even, um, like, put any stock in another life. Like, make this life the life that you become enlightened. And his metaphor was, if you were shot by an arrow and brought to a doctor, you'd want the doctor to remove the arrow. Imagine if the doctor, as she was removing the arrow, the patient suddenly said, wait, wait, doctor, doctor, before you remove the poisoned arrow from my flesh, I have a few questions. What is the nature of this poison? How quick acting is this poison? Who shot the arrow? What angle did the the arrow pierce my flesh? You know, all these theoretical questions have nothing to do with the actual removal of the arrow. In fact, they even delay the doctor's removal of the air. So the Buddha said, don't concern yourself with all this reincar- like all this metaphysical speculation. Just meditate. Practice the eightfold path, the, the, the path to enlightenment. Realize yourself now and achieve the ultimate effect, which is your awakening. And for the Buddha, that awakening, he called it nirvana. And by the way, nirvana, it's a negative statement. It means blowing out. Nirvana doesn't define itself. It just tells you what it isn't. It isn't your mind. It isn't your suffering. It isn't everything that you've taken to be real. It's extinguishing that in order to give you something more real, something more beautiful. Now, that for the Buddha was where your journey actually began. So you can think of this as the line to get into the line at Disneyland to ride your ride. You know, 
for the Buddha, you finally, you didn't even get on the ride, actually. You just got into the line for the ride once you became enlightened. <laughs> so that's the beginning, according to the Buddha. So a lot of Buddhist schools, especially Southern Buddhist schools, like Hinayana Buddhist traditions, don't like to have this conversation of reincarnation. But still, it's an important part of Eastern philosophy in a lot of Buddhist schools. So what are these mini effects then, or mini causes? That's your life. So let's just take for our data, our life now. Some of you, I don't want to presuppose, some of you probably, maybe from your meditation, have past life memories, you know? Maybe you knew who you were in your past lives. We might have amongst us today, Dorothy Edies. And hopefully when we finish our lecture and have our discussion, we'll hear something about that. Um, but I want to suggest that you don't need past life's memories to actually interact with your past life. And Roxanne, oh, it's good to see you, Roxanne. Welcome. Roxanne asks, might it not also have been created out of pain or void? Yes, precisely. Um, it could be um, a lot of schools of Indian philosophy call it itcha, the urge, kind of a homonym to itch, right? And when you have an itch, you need to scratch it. When you have an urge, you need to express it. It's like birth pains. The, the birth pain of giving birth is a creative expression. And it hurts, right? Like the pain of, of expressing yourself. And if you're an artist, you understand this. There's a lot of pain in putting out your work, you know? And so it could, you could call it the pain of the void, the desire of the void to give birth to a world of form. Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching calls it the mother of 10,000 things. How beautiful. 10,000 things is what the Taoists call the universe. Of course, there are more than 10,000 things, you know, but if you were living in 6th century China, 10,000 is a lot, you know? So you're like, 10,000 things, that's the universe. This void is the mother of 10,000 things. So you can imagine this birth process, you know, she gestating, she needs to give birth. So yes, that's entirely right, Roxanne. Beautiful thought, pain of the void. So now we have this world. In this drama of the first cause meeting the final effect, you are yourself both a cause and an effect. So let's look at that more closely. Maybe you don't have memories of your past lives. Why? Why don't you have memories of your past life? The reason is, as we discussed earlier in today's lecture, it's not your mind and thoughts that carry over. It's not your body that carries over. You know, unless you've been practicing Hatha Yoga, and you know, it's true, in Hatha Yoga, there are saints who can preserve the body for an incredibly long period of time. They call it the adamantine body, Divya Deha, or Vajra Deha, and they have the same body for aeons. You know, um, so yes, there are some beings who have a body forever. But for most of us in this room, I, not to presume, but you're probably working with the new hardware. You know, you probably were born into this body and you kind of matured into this age. And this is a, you know, you haven't been 17 for the last 700 years. I'm just going to assume that of you, you know, um, how presumptuous of me. I don't know who's here, but for most of us, you know, we got some new hardware. We got new bodies. We got new parents in a way, we got new circumstances, and we got new thoughts and emotions. All of this seems like it's just in this life. It's not coming from a previous life or whatever. It's, to an extent, that's true. 
So earlier we said, what is it that carries over? Not your body, not your mind, not your thoughts. What carries over is your prana, your etheric body, your cold. Even earlier than that in today's lecture, I explained how in yoga, you don't access a deeper layer of your being until the layer above it has become still. So you're not going to be able to interact with your um, thoughts unless your body is calm and still. You're not going to be able to interact with your energy until your thoughts are calm and still. And how many of us can say that in meditation, our thoughts are calm and still? You know, there's still a lot of ripples in the pond, a lot of fluctuating. My promise to you, and remember, don't take my word for it. You have to go and find it. But my promise to you is that if you perfect your meditation, you will indubitably become aware of your past lives. Indubitably. You'll start to have smatterings, you know, memories, and they won't feel like flights of fancy. You know, why is it that your dreams feel different from your waking memory? And why is it that some memories feel more real than others? You know, you know there's something in you that is able to recognize the quality of certain um, thoughts, you know, like dream quality, uh, flight of fancy quality. I'm imagining myself in a hot tub, um, you know, somewhere in the Bahamas right now versus an actual memory of being in the hot tub somewhere in Bahamas, you know? There's a different quality. So like that, when you start meditating, you will start to have memories that carry the quality of authentic memories, you know? And you will get glimpses. At first, it will just be glimpses of your past life. And then it will become full-blown knowledge of your past lives. And it's a very exciting thing when it happens because suddenly it all makes sense, you know? It all makes sense why you're here, why you chose these parents, why you're choosing to have certain diseases at certain times. Um, you start to see cause and effect in a little bigger picture. Right now, maybe the picture is a little contracted. So I like the metaphor of the pool table, you know? The, somebody struck the pool table and now all the balls are flying. As a particular ball, you're only, you know, seeing the next ball in front of you. So you can only see one cause and one effect. It's kind of a contracted tunnel vision form of consciousness. As you meditate and you step back, from your own individual ball, you get a bigger glimpse of the pool table. And you start to see yourself as a confluence of causes and effects from different lives. And, you know, often in this life too. So you, you become a better psychoanalyst in a way. You know why what's happening, you know why it's really happening. So meditation in that way can give you that glimpse. But I want to go even further. I want to suggest that you do not right now need to become full-blown master meditating yogis. You do not need to achieve samadhi to have some knowledge of your past life. And the reason is, in this moment, your tendencies in this moment, your inclinations are glimpses into who you were. So the very fact that you are sitting here engaging in this philosophical discussion The fact that there was something in you that nudged you towards yoga philosophy in any capacity of the word, the fact that there's something in you that craves spirituality is a sign that in a previous life, you either were already that um, and you're just coming back to re-experience it, or um, you had already been on the journey, 
Or, um, and, and this is the joke, right? It's like you wouldn't see any value to spirituality if someone at some point didn't take off the blinders to give you a view of reality and they put the blinders back on and now you know it's out there. You just don't know how to get back to it, you know? So you try it with the shrooms, you try it with the LSD, you try it with the yoga, and you're trying to get... But the reason you're trying so hard is because you know deep inside about the validity of something, not because someone told you, but because you yourself experienced it, you know? You yourself saw reality, and now you've, quote-unquote, fallen from it, but still the memory is strong enough as to incline you to certain practices. Now, here's where it gets more interesting. It's not just that you have a spiritual urge, right? I mean, all of us at some point or rather will start to feel this growing pain. Um, <laughs> the, the desire to uh, grow and learn. So all of us have that. But it's not just that you feel spiritual. You each have a unique way of pursuing your spirituality. You know, some of you are bhakti yogis. And what constitutes your practice is chanting and singing Hare Krishna or, or mantra. You know, you have that uh, musical aspect to your spirituality. Some of you are jnana yogis. It's all about philosophy and Vedantic meditation. Very fierce path, you know. Some of you are hatha yogis, you know, raja yogis. Some of you are Sufis. Some of you are Christian mystics. Um, what turns you on has a large part to do with what you've experienced in a previous life. So if you're reading like St. John of the Cross and you suddenly feel um, a strange like recognition, like, oh, I've heard this stuff before. It's probably because you have. If I'm spouting yogic uh, philosophy to you, I talk about the Anomaya Kosha or Atman or Brahma, and it makes sense for some reason, it's probably because this is not your first pass at this material, you know? You've heard it before. Um, and this is your indication, or at least your clue, as to what the patterns of your past lives have been. So, you know, I was always very curious. I had a friend, and he is a brilliant coder. You know, absolutely brilliant um, computer guy. Now, the interesting thing is his mother is an artist, a beautiful artist, and she's so passionate about her visual art. You know, she's a painter. And he grew up in a household of hippies and artists. There were no computers around him, you know? There was no math or logical, like-minded people. It was all just right brain, creative, finger painting, you know, naked hippies, you know? And... Somehow or rather, at age eight, he started to <laughs> he started to become interested in computers, and he went to his school computer, learned coding all on his own, you know. And psychologists will talk about nature versus nurture all day, right? And I think the the most definitive statement now, you know, beside the lukewarm, it's both guys, you know, be, beside the fence riding lukewarm take. I think the most psychologically relevant quote is that nurture overtakes nature. Sorry, nature overtakes nurture, right? A lot of twin studies show that even if you have the same circumstances, there are just certain genetic factors, mysterious factors beyond nature, uh, nurture that just, you know, they call it nature, whatever. So it's like that. This child naturally felt inclined to coding. He pursued computer science with the same artistry that his mother pursued painting. 
It's not because he saw money in it. It's not because he wanted to go to Silicon Valley. I firmly believe that if we lived in a world where his talent was not rewarded financially, he would still be doing it. You know, that means in a previous life, he must have put in some kind of work in that direction that in this life, it's seeking its expression, you know. Uh, I'm happy, Roxanne, that you, you, you enjoyed what you could have enjoyed. Um, it was good to have you in this short moment. <laughs> Roxanne is a wonderful dancer. It's nice to have so many different artists in the room. Ooh. So that being said, you can see how there are certain tendencies that develop in you that have nothing to do with your parents, nothing to do with your geographical, socio-political climate. Some of you are interested in poetry from the 16th century. I don't know why. Probably because that's where your last life was, you know? Some of you are a little ahead of your time. That's probably because your last life was in the future. Here's another curveball. Your past life does not have to be in the past. It could be a life that is being lived in the temporal future because once you ascend to that realm, it's no longer linear in time. You know, you're coming down from realms that have a different scheme of time. And all these realms meet at this moment. Yeah, B-theory, exactly. In quantum mechanics, it's called B-theory of time, where past, present, and future exist in one block of time. And mathematically, this is a most, most accurate picture of reality. It explains things like backward causality in quantum mechanics. It's very exciting. And uh, one day, I promise you, we'll sit down and we'll have an entirely quantum mechanics-associated yoga talk, you know? Oh, yes, I've heard about that and actually never experienced it, the egg. But so the beauty of this is that it's atemporal. It doesn't follow past, present, future in the A series or A theory of time. And your experience of your life now is in effect for a cause that happened before. So that's, that's groovy, right? Um, so there's nothing after, everyone gets enlightened, but the future is already existing and being lived. How are we still here doing what we are? Good question. Think of it this way. The cause, which primal cause, I'll differentiate this as cause, capital C, is the universe's desire to experience itself in the many. It wants to be the one in the many as opposed to just being the one. So that's the primal cause. Put that here primal effect uh, or ultimate effect, put that here, which is the event in which the universe experiences itself as one in the many. Everything that happens here happens in time. This cause and this effect are outside of time. Time is nothing more than a thought construct. Enlightenment is nothing more than the ending of all thought constructs. Sri Ramakrishna said a beautiful thing. He said, the body should not be rejected or despised. Do you know why? Because the body is a necessary step in reasoning. Isn't that beautiful? Ramakrishna said your spiritual quest, it's like you're just trying to figure something out. Having a body is a part of that reasoning. Your body is nothing more than a thought construct. You know, and once you overcome that, you work with subtler and subtler thoughts until you overcome all thoughts time stops. In the beginning, there was the word, the word was with God and, and God was the word, right? Here's the thing, the word's already been spoken. <laughs> it's not that the word is being spoken in present tense. The word got said, it got uttered. That means the 
the pool ball was struck and the pool table just splashed out, you know? In a sense, you are a completely determined being. You know, the rate at which the snake sheds its skin, as Ram Da says, is the rate at which the snake sheds its skin. You can't force it. You can't rush it. You can't slow it down. Your spiritual unfoldment, it seems like you have something to do with it. But as Ram Das also pointed out, you will hear in what he has to say only what you are ready to hear. Jesus said it too. Those of you with ears, hear. Those of you with eyes, see. You know? Um, so in that way, I can give this whole talk and each of you will take something differently from it. And what you will take from it um, thank you, Nick. Thank you for the, the link. But yeah, what you will take from it is entirely determined by where you are in your spiritual journey. Okay, so I want to close with this. And I think we're going to do a part three because we didn't even get to talk about the Tibetan Book of the Dead or about the Yoga Sutra and Samskara and Vasana. Um, so there's more, there's more. But I want to close by saying this. You are now appreciating the fact that you are an effect. So the reason you have the body that you have, the parents that you have, the reason you experience certain things at certain times in your life, the reason that you're here now experiencing this conversation, the reason that you are here with these particular people, it's no accident that Lyric is here today and not last week. You know, it's no accident. This is exactly the time that Lyric needed to be here. Last week wouldn't have served her at all, you know? Um, and that's the thing. It's like, there's no accident. So given that, we are now enjoying an effect, right? A beautifully orchestrated effect whose causes lie in all sorts of different realms and times and beautiful, beautiful, you know? For all I know, Madeline was in a French monastery, you know, studying Christian esoteric mysticism when she chanced upon a passage that came from the Upanishads and that's why there's like a yogic inclination now, you know, I don't know. Like the, the causes are so beautiful, but here's an effect. In closing, I want to suggest to you that now that you are an effect, you can also start being a cause. So your you as an effect are just um, a storehouse of tendencies. After all, you could say you didn't have to come to this discussion today. However, you know, something inside you moved you um, to do it. And that tendency was a little stronger than other tendencies, you know. So whatever reason, you, you can take this as a free will. In, in a free will context, you could say you chose, right? In a non-free will context, you could say your overriding tendency was to come. We call that a samskara or an impression, a tendency. And this tendency then, is going to cultivate future tendencies in the same direction. So I will leave you with this. Whatever you choose to do from this point on is an effect whose cause you must eventually meet. Therefore, choose your actions wisely because once you set a chain of events in motion, you will inevitably have to suffer its effect, suffer its consequence. And what is that consequence? Well, there's only two outcomes. Either it's a consequence that hinders your ability to wake up, or it's a consequence that promotes your ability to wake up. And that's different for different people. In yoga, they say a meritorious action or an action done in duty creates punya. Punya means merit. 
The more punya you have, the more harmonious circumstances you will enjoy. And what is a harmonious circumstance, you must ask. Is it just pleasure? Certainly not. We had a whole lecture as to why pleasure was a trap. You know, is it just wealth? Is it just health? Well, in final analysis, you might start to realize that all pleasure is conducive to going beyond pleasure. You can't transcend pleasure if you've never had it, you know? So go and have it. I wish you as much pleasure as you can enjoy. May you be in the bathtub in the Bahamas with your favorite rock stars, you know? May you taste all the sweetest flavors in the world and may you become sick of them, you know? May you achieve all the wealth and kingdoms that your heart desires. Go out and conquer your empires. Alexander the Great that shit up, you know? And get tired of that. And then slowly, in, after every birth, you start to shed this skin. All these desires no longer become suitable. And you will find yourself in a healthy body, in a particularly affluent family that is able to give you the education that you needed, or not, or you'll just find a way to get the education. And you will have all the conditions in your life be conducive to your spiritual practice. Isn't that sweet? So the best case scenario for you is any circumstance that is conducive to your sadhana. So it's funny. They say the best birth is a human birth. And the reason why is because you have chakras. You have what we call shushumna, which is your spinal column. And that allows you to experience many worlds, you know, where certain beings without that hardware can't do it. So a human birth is very fortuitous because you have this shushumna with the chakras, you know, that's really great. So that's a good birth. You know what's even a better birth? A human birth wherein not only are you inclined to spirituality, but it's actually there for you to consume. It's beautiful that you chose to incarnate in this time of the internet when all barriers have been dissolved. If you want to be a Hatha Yogi, you can. If you want to be a whirling dervish Sufi, you can. If you want to be a Christian mystic, a Jain, you know, a Rastafarian, whatever floats your boat, you have incarnated in the unique time where that's possible for you. Now, the best birth is when you found your path, you found your guru, a true teacher, and the, the best birth you can possibly imagine is the birth where you have a human body, you found your guru, you found your path, you're inclined to walk the path, and you're actually walking it. You know, that's the highest conception of a human life. And that will close today. Sorry, I went four minutes over. Let's end um, our discussion with perhaps a collective OM. If you'd like, you can join me for OM. It's three, oh, sorry, four syllables. Ah, U, um. The fourth syllable is silence. So sitting upright, palms rest over the sternum, thumbs touching the sternum. Put a little pressure there with the thumbs on the sternum. And we'll inhale now to a single OM. If you'd like to unmute yourself and join, you're welcome.
Thank you for being my teachers. Namaste. Thank you everyone for a beautiful day. Just gonna remove this pin and I will, as always, stick around for questions, comments, discussion. So feel free to unmute yourself and, you know, share. So I just have a quick question about, you said like there's a pattern in the energy body that gets passed on like needs and desires within it but how like for instance yours to be like a rock star right like where did that come from in the first place like where did such a need or desire like you know where would it have come from that's a beautiful question any thoughts anyone as to where the inclinations come from Maybe the same reason for the, like, why the universe exists for fun, you know, to experience life as, a, as, a, as Nish is a rock star. <laughs> no, all I know is that at some point in my childhood, I was very attracted to guitars, you know. Um, where did that come from? Well, maybe you could say there was a life in Spain in which I played a lot of guitar. And it was a couple of lives back, and now... It's finding its expression. And I chose to take a birth in a cultural epoch or a cultural setting that had for me um, a certain kind of music that blended together two lifetimes. So one of those lifetimes, welcome Eden, it's good to see you. In one of those lifetimes, it was playing Spanish guitar. In another lifetime, it was uh, worship of Kali, worship of um, a certain kind of Hinduism that had a lot of drums and percussive music and certain spiritual themes, such as the exploration of darkness and suffering. So when guitar and the worship of Kali come together, what you get is rock and roll, right? <laughs> Heavy metal. <laughs> and so naturally, the Nish incarnation is finding a way to mix and match and is experiencing as a child the desire not just to play guitar, you know, like I'm not in a jazz band, you know, but the desire to play a certain kind of guitar. So why you like certain things? Like, why is it that I like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin? You know, why is it that that music excites me? Or why do you like certain artists? Why is it Gustav Moreau or Picasso and not Clint or Clint? You know, like, why is it? So it's like that. You, It's so subtle, but you can bet that it's probably a confluence of forces from not just one, but several other lifetimes. Did that... Definitely. It also explains a lot of things from my own experience. Like I, <laughs> in my like childhood, I had this like tiny little keyboard and my parents, neither of my parents have like any sort of musical ability at all. Like, <laughs> like not at all, <laughs> but I was just obsessed with the piano for no reason. And it was just a like tiny little thing. And it had this like fear release like tutorial where the little keys would like light up and I would dedicate all of my time to just like memorizing the fear release or whatever. My parents were like, what in the world? Like where did this come from? But it's so interesting 
now like thinking about this stuff and like you know maybe a possibility of being like obsessed with the piano in a past life so it's cool you probably wrote for at least who knows you know we were talking mozart last week right isn't that sweet it's funny for mozart he his soul wanted to be born to a musician father you know and his soul for some reason wanted to have struggle with that father and wanted to at age 3 become a virtuoso piano player it's quite curious but yeah you might have nothing in common with your parents but there's for some reason you chose them you know so there must be some aid that your parents in in, in every sense and this is the most beautiful thing all suffering is functional you know and that's ramdas was big on that right so every disease you have you chose it you know but the reason you chose it was because it's functional to some deeper thing and in that same sense all your inclinations like your desire to learn the piano and figure out for Elise it has to consummate itself so you you know your dharma will lead you in some musical path and you have to follow it because if you don't then you'll just take another birth and do that you know but that's also awesome. what are you doing with it like so how is it how does it continue to influence your life um it's actually like kind of like complicated and a little bit sad but like i don't know it's just well i'm like pre med i'm in college right now i'm a sophomore but um it's just been like difficult also with like having a lot of time to reflect like realizing okay maybe this isn't for me and like the extent of my music like or i guess music's presence in my life has been just like for fun like i don't know i played the piano a lot throughout my life and like i was in orchestra and then i started learning the guitar recently so like it's just kind of been for fun but it's like really what i like to do so it's scary like i don't know it's a very like weird period for me right now in that aspect it is a story told a million times for all brown children everywhere <laughs> Really? it's not even like parental pressure it's like definitely from myself which is like i don't know it's weird yeah I feel like, oh sorry go ahead go ahead i feel like maybe a lot of people are in that sorry if you hear noise by the way my cat's being crazy <laughs> a lot of people are i'm finding in that state of like like scared uncertainty like but that happens right before you find something really deep inside that fulfills you you know what i mean like that is just the way that i'm trying to see it for myself cuz i feel like in a state of uncertainty too right now is like just be grateful for that because that is an indication that you're moving forward somewhere you know yeah i like that <laughs> So yeah, I get it though. I'm I'm kind of in a same boat of not knowing what to do. <laughs> not knowing what to do with that. Um, you're looking for your calling or like you know what your calling is, but you're not yet really confident. I suppose I don't know. Like I have so many different things that I feel called to. Like it's it's kind of crazy. Like I feel called to photography, I feel called to yoga, I feel called to 
animals and environmental activism or like writing you know it's just there's so many avenues I feel like I could take but if I stuck to one of them I don't think I would be happy because it's like if I just stick to one it cuts off all the other things so I'm trying to just be open and not really try to dictate what I'm going to do and what's going to happen and just let things flow to me, I suppose. And that that's scary because it's like really surrendering to the state of unknown and having to trust that and feel okay in that. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you could not have said that more beautifully. Either. I think that's the functional definition of spiritual practice, the ability to stay in a state of unknown and be okay with that. I love the way you phrase that. Thank you. <laughs> you're, you're not really, or, or better yet, being okay with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In our Dharma talk, we said what will spirituality will give you two things. One, it will give you the insight to know what you should be doing. You know, a lot of us don't really know what we should be doing, so meditation will help do that. But some of us do know what we should be doing. We just haven't yet summoned up the courage to leave our old concepts of self or in many ways like the pressures we put on ourselves right like we need to be this and we have to do this for those people and often those people don't really even care it's just a mental construct and so that spirituality will weaken those things the more you meditate the more um those concepts of who you think you are and who you think you ought to be lose their hold on you then you get the courage so insight to know what you should do, courage to pursue it, that's dharma. Would we, is there a chance that like in our life we will never, I guess, achieve or experience our dharma or is it just a given that we will? Yeah, this is a good question. This is why the free will discussion comes into play because in yoga you could you could say it this way you are going to become enlightened you know no matter what you do you're going to become enlightened and that means no matter what you do and to become enlightened necessarily you'll have to do your dharma you know and whatever it turns out to be in that life so no matter what you will at some point be doing your dharma the question is will it happen for you in this life now in yoga they say i think it's 482 times 10 to the power of six or nine zero. It's like four, eight, two, zero, 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 zero. I think number of years to become enlightened. So that's how long it takes. Or some people call that a kalpa. So that means it's just like a crazy duration of time. They call this one day of Brahma or one day in the life of the universe. You know, it's very interesting. So eventually if you do nothing, if you just live your life at the mercy of your patterns and complexes, you do no spiritual work on yourself whatsoever, you'll still get there, you know? It's just like an, an inexorable march. It's so slow. And in the process, there's a lot of suffering, you know? So there are two kinds of suffering. There is functional suffering, the suffering that you need to wake up from it. So that suffering is good because it wakes you up. But then there's a bunch of needless suffering that goes on that we create for ourselves. Very acute, you know. And so the idea is suffering less is probably better. So that's what a spiritual practice is there for. It's, you know, in yoga, it says you can even through your spiritual practice, dodge the effects of karma. 
So there's certain karma coming to you right now. You can skirt your way around it through spiritual practice. So you might have chosen in this life to, I don't know, suffer a disease, but because of your daily hatha yoga practice, you don't, you know? So yoga is like the jujitsu of karma. You're figuring out how to like dodge things, flip things over. It's, it's all very interesting. You ultimately rewrite your own script. So yes, in a way, there are individuals who will come into this life, be given countless opportunities to wake up. Um, they will get teachers and often those teachers will be in the form of suffering. But at the end of the day, you know, the horse, if it doesn't want to drink the water, you can't. So they will suffer and they'll suffer and they'll suffer and they won't see what that suffering is doing for them. And yes, they live and die. In fact, a lot of people live and die completely miserable. It's actually really valuable talking to old people, you know, because if you talk to them for a while, they'll pretend to be happy. You know, if you just see them at Thanksgiving, they'll be like, yeah, life is good. Yeah, I got my garden. But if you spend like every day with them and like sit with them for hours until they actually start talking about their life, like it can get pretty dark pretty quick, you know, because a lot of old people start to realize the absolute futility of their lives. They... Almost all of them, you know, if you talk to them, most of them start to realize, like, I wish I didn't take, like, that so as seriously as I did. I wish I didn't live for my father or my mother. I wish I didn't sacrifice my life because I thought I had to be something for my children, you know? It's actually a beautiful quote somewhere. Um, this old lady writes, like, oh, I would have taken more days off or something like that. But a lot of people get to the end of their life absolutely disappointed um, about the way they have lived it, you know? And... It's funny, in my, in, in my experience, my grandfather, he was a very devout, very great yogi, you know, very great yogi. And he spent his entire, like every day, his whole life just practicing yoga, you know. And it was very sad because at the very end of his life, and I was there for that, he um, expressed profound existential disappointment. It was so dark. He was like, I failed. And I was like, I failed my quest as a yogi. I never got there. I never found God. I never, you know, whatever his goal was, he never got it. And he like left a rather defeated yogi. It was very sad because I don't know, you know, um, there are concepts that maybe he still held on to that were keeping him away from the truth that he already had, you know, and it's dark because he is my guru, you know, I owe everything to my grandfather. So it's dark to see even some developed souls like that get to the end of their life and feel like maybe I would have done it differently. <laughs> so answer is yes. It is possible and actually very likely for a lot of people that they will die and have never done it. I think it's a good practice not to like regret things. As hard as that is, I feel like I've, been doing that a lot in the past few years is just accepting the decisions I've made and embracing them and, you know, seeing the light inside of them however I can, because stories like that and like seeing stuff with my own grandma too, like my experiences with her, regret is such like a poison to your mind. You know what I mean? And it, it's just like, why regret? Cause you know, even with your grandfather, you were saying that, you know, he looked back and thought he could do better, but that in itself is a lesson to you even, like, just to, not to him, to all the people around him that has meaning, that 
regret that he had has meaning and probably in his next life has meaning to him, you know, so he doesn't continue down that same path. So he looks at his life with gratitude, you know what I mean? So having that kind of mindset, I feel like is a way to dodge that sort of unhappiness at the end of your life and just see that there's a blessing in it too. Precisely. Because those thoughts, Dave, they come and go. So it's actually really funny because when my grandfather did pass away, you know, um, you know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead says there's 49 days between a person's passing away and their reincarnation, should they choose it, into their next life, you know. So, of course, and, you know, this is nonsense, but here we are at the end of the class, I'll share. I was hanging out in the astral in, incessantly, just looking, you know. And a lot of people have this, you know, when someone they love passes away, they, ha- they, vi- they get visited by them in dreams. They have dreams involving them. And often they are calling them over. You know, it's very eerie. But uh, I went and found him and he is deciding to take a birth in a different plane, much more befitting his spiritual caliber. You know, the last I saw him, he was in this beautiful temple across the river. It was a place of worship of our family deity, which is Shiva, you know. So in a way, he's looking back. He's like, no, I didn't fail. I totally did what I had to do. And I was a totally predetermined being. So that's the beautiful realization you get from yoga. It's like you think you're the author of your actions, but you're not, you know. You're just kind of living out a sequence of chain and a chain of events that's going to play itself out the way it's going to play itself out. Now, that while that might be true, it's not good to relapse into that if you're just like, oh, it's going to happen regardless of whatever I do. I'm just going to sit back and let spirituality unfold. That concept is not functional to your spirituality. And given all concepts are functional or they aren't because they're all not true, right? No concept is the reality. So given that, we can entertain the paradox. Yes, you are a fully determined being, but it's better to pretend like today you got to take charge of this moment and live such that you won't have any regrets. And as Eden says, sees the light in every regret or that you do currently have. It's very beautiful. You're, you're so young. That's the beautiful thing. Like everybody here, you know, has, has the blessing of youth, which is so, oh, can you imagine how lucky? <laughs> You're young too, so. <laughs> I know. What an extraordinary thing to be. Oh. A lot of people turn to spirituality and they're like 80, you know, and they're just like, oh, I've got 10 more years. <laughs> oh. Madeline, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing all right. I feel really good right now. Thank you everyone for being here. Um, really special Monday, new Monday tradition <laughs> that I've found. <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't know. I'm in San Francisco. I don't know where you guys are. Um, so it's a very kind of cold, foggy, quiet um, night. <laughs> and I have some candles and it's really warm in my room. And I'm all alone for want for the night, which is interesting for me. So I'm just being here. Oh. Beautiful. Being here on a foggy San Francisco night. <laughs> yeah. Um, wait, don't tell me. Don't tell me. It's not Massachusetts. It's wait. Ugh, where are you, Nick? 
I was in Michigan last time, the last few times we've, but right now I'm actually in New Jersey for, um, yeah. Yeah. East coast. It's late for you now. It's like, <laughs> Oh yeah, it is. But it's, uh, I usually end up de deciding to stay up late for this. <laughs> Thank you, brother. And I know, I know Eden is in Huntington beach. You're here in LA somewhere, right? And presumably lyric as well. Um, I'm actually in San Diego right now. So Eden was visiting. Um, it was right after we had gone, or I was like swimming with some seals um, at in La Jolla near San Diego. And then I was just like drying off and I saw Eden just like walking on the beach and she just looked so happy and we just made eye contact and we were just smiling. And then she came over and we just talked for a while and we've been talking on the phone a little bit and then she um, invited me to this and I'm really glad I came. It's been really, really cool. Awesome. I will be. <laughs> so thank you so much. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> um, I did have another question. There's time for that. Of course. Um, I was wondering, is there any way of knowing, like, if we're old souls or new souls or how many lives we've had before? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, I have this analogy, if you'll allow, um, the ramen store you go to the ramen store and um you get a menu and on the menu there are different kinds of ramen and you order like ramen a or whatever and you're eating it and it sucks it's awful you get to the end of the bowl of ramen and you're like oh you hate it the next day you come back to the same ramen shop you're not going to order ramen a it's just not you know so you get ramen b And while you're eating ramen B, you're like, ugh, this isn't too good either. You look next to you and someone's eating ramen A, you know? And you look at them and you're like, dude, don't do it that way. That stuff is, oh, you feel awful after. And they don't know because they haven't gone into the end of the bowl, you know? So they're still eating ramen A. Now, to you, ramen A eater is the younger soul because you have had an experience that have, has moved you beyond the current state of young, younger soul, you know, the ramen A eater. Now, there's no real way of knowing that ramen A fellow hasn't already tried ramen B and didn't like it. You know, so they might look over and be like, ramen B, ew, I can't believe you're eating that. To them, you're the younger soul, you know? The problem is, no two bowl of ramen, you can't say which one was the more evolved bowl of ramen. This is a very clunky metaphor. But my point is, you can take each ramen bowl to be a certain life, like a life for wealth. Ramen bowl A is the wealth life, you know? Didn't work out, you found that out on, on your deathbed when you were like a billionaire, you realize your life had no meaning, you know? And money isn't just it. There's more to life than this. So you die. In your next life, you probably won't be inclined to go and amass wealth. You know, you've already tried that bowl of ramen. You finished it. You ate the whole thing. Now maybe you're living for fame or pleasure. Ramen bowl B, right? So at the end of the day, there are two ways to finish with the desire. Either you can eat the whole bowl of ramen and get sick. That's one way to finish with the desire. Or here's another thing. You can go into the ramen store for the first time. It's your first visit. You try a little bit of ramen A and you make the inference that this is not going to do it for me. You don't have to finish the bowl. You don't have to live the whole life, and, you know, and you're just like, I'm done. And then maybe you taste a bit of ramen B, and you're like, I, I don't think that's it, you know? And you listen to what the other people in the ramen store are saying. 
He's like, oh, I tried ramen A yesterday. It sucked. It wasn't good. Someone said, I tried ramen B. And you listen and listen and listen. That Now it's philosophy, right? Now you're listening to what has been said. You're uh, using the experience of those who came before. But you're making your own inferences that save you from having to have the ramen A bloated feeling at the end of the bowl. In a sense, this is the youngest soul in the room, yes? There are all these old jaded souls around her. They're all bloated from the ramen. And this is her first trip to the ramen store and she's figuring it all out, you know? So what accounts for that, that insight, that intuition, that ability to learn from experience? You know that um, there right now, as I'm talking, there is, no, not right now, it's a bit late, but at some part of the world, there is a woman at Starbucks. She's 45. She's a lawyer, like at a big law firm, very well educated. You know what she's doing? She's screaming at the 17-year-old barista because he didn't put the amount of honey in her coffee that she asked for. What a child, like a tantrum, you know, it's like a five-year-old behavior. She's doing that. But at the same time, somewhere else in the world, there is a seven-year-old taking the fall for something her little brother did, so he wouldn't have to suffer the punishment, you know? What a mature person. So when you put the two together, who is older? You know, not the 45-year-old. Age-wise, the 45, you know, so when you think about old souls and new souls, that paradigm doesn't work. You know, because who's to say what's time, what's age, you know, who uh, can you say smarter souls? I don't know, maybe more insightful souls, maybe, but that might have no correlation to how many lives you've lived before. Some people say yes. Some people say you need to have lived a lot of lives to develop that level of discrimination or viveka, but ultimately there's no way of knowing. It, it, it's a quality, viveka, it's called in yoga, V-I-V-E-K-A, viveka. And it's your ability to discern, to discriminate, to philosophize, to think. And it might have nothing to do with maturity. So that's the most I can say there. (laughs) Did that help? Yeah. And then I got another question from that was really helpful. Thank you so much. Um, And I got another question from that. So is there any sort of luck to this or is it all like karma and active choices? And then why do some people just seem to live lives of suffering or die young? Like, why do those things happen before they even get a chance to, like, fulfill their spirituality or, mm-hmm. like, you know, philosophize? Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Uh, beautiful question. Ramakrishna, the great Indian sage, is known for his ability to work miracles. Oh, Nick, thank you so much. It was a joy. Joy to see you, brother. Take care. Take care. He's going to bed for Nick. So late for him. But uh, um, it's pretty early for me. But um, Ramakrishna was known for being able to fulfill miracles. So people would come to him sick and he would heal them. You know, he's a Jesus figure. One day he got throat cancer. And it was horrific. It's the worst form of cancer, doctors say. It's very painful. There's a lot of suffering. It's a very messy form of cancer. And he didn't heal himself, you know. And people were like, Ramakrishna... You're a great sage. Heal your throat cancer. Stay in the world and continue to teach people. And he refused. And a lot of his followers left him because they were like, I am not following a spiritual master who has throat cancer. You know, now Ramakrishna said this was functional for two reasons. One, because it helps separate the fake followers from the real followers. Those who couldn't see beyond the surface of appearance. Secondly, he said, I need to have this throat cancer because it's an effect 
of a cause that I started in a previous life, if I don't experience this effect now, I'm going to have to take another birth and experience it then. You know, So Ramakrishna can do two things. One, he can heal the throat cancer, live the rest of his life, and die naturally. Not to say throat cancer isn't a natural death, but you know, comfortably. In that case, you know what he would have had to do? Probably take the life of a stillborn. That is the way to meet. So there are other ways. So he didn't have to have the throat cancer. He could have just incarnated as a baby who died in the womb. But the incarnation would still be necessary. You know? And in that sense, people who die young are people who have finished what they needed their body to do. So some of those people needed their body just so they could have an experience of an awful act of violence. It's terrible to say, but that act of violence was an effect from a cause and they decided that that would be the life to do it. And not just that, it was functional for the people that loved them. You know, and I'm sure you've seen Peter Jackson's The Lovely Bones. In a way, that's a beautiful karmic story. And it's a beautiful movie because there's her voice kind of overarching it as a spirit. And she talks about the beauty and sanctity of a horrible thing that happened to her. I'm yet to see this movie, but um, my partner, she always talks about The Shack. And she's trying to get me to say it's like this beautiful Christian mystic movie about this guy who I think his daughter dies horrifically. And he cannot come to terms with why this happened to him. You know, why him? Why her? She's so young. And so he meets um, God and they have this conversation. I'm yet to see the movie, so... I don't know, but there are movies like that. Lovely Bones, The Shack, movies about futility of life. Christina, welcome. <laughs> oh, Sunday. I literally thought it was Sunday. And I was like, no way. I just missed it. I, after you're done, I wanted to add something because I was watching live and I was like, I need to interact. Of so. course. Keep going. Sorry. That's about all I have to say. It's just that people take births that end quickly because that's what they needed. That's enough time for them to have experienced all they would have experienced. If they stayed on past that time, it wouldn't be functional. It would be redundant. In that sense, there's no chance or luck or accidents. They very intentionally chose and died or chose and suffered. And so that suffering isn't meaningless. It's chosen. It's taken on, you know, that's one answer. The second answer is a lot of Buddhist schools, Vajrayana Buddhist schools think there is a great degree of randomness and chance. Do you know why? If you are an infinite being creating a world of infinite form, that means infinite possibilities are allowed. So there's only so much intentionality you as God can have. God in a way is consigned to the world that she created and she created a world of infinite possibilities. So she has to live with that, right? If she chooses to incarnate into a being, there is a possibility that that being won't recognize herself as God. So she takes a risk every time she becomes somebody. And that risk is suffering for lifetime after lifetime, you know? So I kind of like that too. And that's why the Buddhists say, when you die, you got to die right. You got to make sure the last thought in your mind is the most sacred, most beautiful thought. In a lot of Christian churches, they tell you to look at the cross as you're dying, just because the drishti, the gaze, will in a way guide your spirit to the next life. And I highly recommend the Tibetan Book of the Dead, many translations, but it's about a dangerous journey that the soul makes between one incarnation and the other. 
The Egyptian Book of the Dead by the scribe of Anu does the same. So yes and no, there is no chance, there is no randomness, all suffering is functional. And no, there is a high degree of chance and probability because this is an infinite universe and there is some risk taking. <laughs> so there's my non-answer. <laughs> Did that help? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Actually, I, I appreciate the non-answers because then we can, like, like what you said, we can apply, like, we can, we don't, like, we're not just taking exactly what you're saying as, as truth, you know? Because we have yeah. to be able to do for ourselves, too, so. Yes, exactly. I, I do have to say one more thing, Christina, before I call on you. It's, it's the Shruti Sai Baba used to perform miracles. And people would come to him with a baby that was bitten by a rattlesnake. And here's the crazy thing. One would come in with a baby who had cholera cholera and say, um, Shruti Sai Baba, beautiful saint, Shruti Sai Baba is his name. Can you heal this baby? And he would heal him. He'll say, by the will of Allah, and he'll heal him. You know, he was a, a fakir, Muslim saint. So he would do it. Then, right after that baby got healed, another mother with a baby would come in and she would ask, my baby got bitten by a rattlesnake. Can you heal him? He'll say, no. You know, he'll say, makto, makto. It's written. And can you imagine to be the mother with the baby and you just saw the other mother running out of the shack like crying because her baby was saved? You know this bugger can do it. He just didn't. And it's horrific and it's heartbreaking and it's, um, you know, it seems so futile to be that mother. And he often, you know, in his compassion would console them and say, you don't understand what saving this baby's life will cost. You know, because he's, a, as a realized being, able to zoom out and see what changes in the billion ball table. If he saves this life, that means the life that that baby would have, should he die now, gets killed. You know? So in a way, he has to kill to save. So you can imagine that as a saint, you're weeding, Right? You're choosing what weeds you want to pull out and what flowers you will let live. Someone comes to you with a weed and begs that you save it. You might prefer that the flower, you know, so I just wanted to add that. I felt quite called. Christina, sorry. It's okay. I just had like this because I was watching the live and you were saying something about like, kind of like what you just said about like the costs and like how like um, the one with the throat cancer and stuff. And I had like um my ex's older brother like my sophomore year he got into a car accident and he ended up passing away but like I always had these dreams about him and in like literally in the dream like he would say like because I was like dating his little brother he was like you like like Lewis is never going to, like he's not going to understand why I died but like I literally had to like I chose it like like it was for the greater good. Like he was like, if I chose to like live longer, it would have been, it would have caused way more suffering than me dying at 18. And like, it was just like, it was like, he was like, people are like, Oh, like he was so young. He was so good. But like, that's exactly why I died. Like I put out whatever I needed into the world. And then like, I went exactly when I needed to like, and it was just like, damn, like everything you said was like made exact sense with the whole dream thing. And then the, and then 
the whole like dying because you're supposed to thing like that's like that's really the thing that like changed my entire perception on death because we see it as such a bad thing but like it's the complete opposite like there's grief and there's pain but like like it's it's birth and death like they go hand in hand kind of like what you're just saying I had to add that I was like let me join this real quick I need to add that so that that story gave me chills Thank you yeah so it was it was a good experience to the unenlightened death is the end to the enlightened death is the birth is the gift it's the greatest event that consummates a human life well <laughs> I just had to add that one because it, it means a lot to me, Christina, that every time you feel the call to put the energy into the cosmic pot that we're stirring up together, you honor it and you do it, you know, and it's yeah. just crazy because what you say, every time you fulfill that urge to share, it's just beautiful to see it affect someone. And, you know, you see these causes go out and it just, I'm so grateful to you, Christina, for doing your dharma. Thank you. I'm grateful for you too, all you guys. Oh, that's great. On that beautiful, wonderful note, I'm going to go. But um, thank you guys, and I'll see you around. Anisha, take care. Have a love. Thank you for another incredible episode of For the Love of Yoga. Find me at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish for more meditation and yoga classes. To get in on the discussion, you can find us every Monday night at 7 p.m. Pacific with Stay Om Yoga. You find us on social media. And also every Thursday night at 7.30 p.m. Pacific with Yoga with world heart. Have a beautiful day ahead. Shanti Shanti